Okay. Well, great. Um, so oh, sorry, just actually, is the sound okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's okay. It's working fine. Um, oh, sorry, I should have asked that before you started. Okay. That's okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> A fair question. Uh, so, as you can hear, I'm joined by Tony Watkins, uh, author and um, media specialist. Uh, he joins me from the UK today. Um, so, thanks for being here, Tony. That's a great pleasure. Thank you, Wesley. Awesome. Great. Um, so, I found out about your work uh, because of a book you wrote called Dark Matter, and it has a couple different subtitles. I was actually mm. curious about that. Uh, it looks like it was printed first as the Thinking Fan's Guide and then reprinted as Shedding Light on Fullman's trilogy, his Dark Materials. Is there much difference between the two versions or what's the story there? The, uh, the second version is the American version. So uh, it was published in the UK with the subtitle, I think, in Fan's Guide to Philip Pullman because it was part of a series of books called A Thinking Fan's Guide. Mm -hmm. um, so we did one on the Matrix trilogy. I think that was our first one. Um, and then there was mine on Pullman and we did one on Doctor Who as well. Um, but in the US, the publisher there didn't have that series and um, felt that a Thinking Fan's Guide just didn't didn't work for them so uh, shedding light was was better for them um the only other difference is that the american version doesn't have an index so um you you definitely need the english version <laughs> yeah it would be helpful yeah well these days you know you can search a text pretty easily um but yeah an index is still definitely a handy tool that so that's kind of i i guess in some way the book uh forms a a, a matrix through which to read Philip Pullman. Um, I found it to be a really well done one of, of what I've read, the scholarship and um, kind of commentaries on Philip Pullman. Uh, I haven't read all of them by any stretch, but um, I really have enjoyed uh, what I've read and, and yours in particular. Um, so I was really glad when you responded when I when I reached out to, to do a little interview here. Um, and Particularly, I was curious about the interview that, that you had a chance to do with Philip Pullman mm. when you were writing the book. Um, that's available on your website, and it's really excellent. Um, I encourage people to check it out. Um, the, the transcript of it, that is, is up yes. there. Um, and it's, it's extremely interesting. Uh, <laughs> this, could you just tell a little bit of the story behind that and kind of how it went and, and your thoughts on it since? It was a funny experience altogether, really, because um, he, I, I met him at an event in Oxford and said, I'd like to interview you. Um, are you up for that? And he said, oh, absolutely, yes. And it was sometime later before we were able to arrange it. And I was having lunch with a friend in Oxford beforehand. Philip Bullman lives not far from Oxford in a village just to the west. And um, I came out from having lunch with my friend to discover that my mother-in-law's car who, who, that I borrowed for the day had a flat tire. Uh, so um, my my friend gave me a lift over to uh, to Philip's house, which kind of created a little bit of oh no stress for me to start with. Mm. So I arrived at his house with no means of escaping again afterwards, but <laughs> I just didn't think until the end of the interview, which went on rather longer than than anticipated. Um, at the end, I suddenly said, "Oh, I should have phoned for a taxi to to pick me up when we had finished." Um, I'm so sorry. Would you mind if I do one uh, call for one now? Um, I didn't have a mobile phone at that point, and um, uh, he said, "You will. Ne it'll take you so long to get a taxi coming out from Oxford at this time to pick you up." He said, "I'll. I'll just give you a lift back to your mother-in-law's car." Um, so um, 
so so Philip very kindly gave me a lift back into Oxford, which was just splendid. It was the moment driving down Sunderland Avenue, <laughs> past the line of hornbeam trees, and thinking, okay, this actually this is a weird moment. I'm driving down Sunderland Avenue with Philip Pullman. <laughs> um, <laughs> That would be such a magical, I think, experience for anyone who's read the book, oh. particularly when you, um, you know, have actually met the author and you've had a chance to talk to him. I mean, what was it like talking to him and getting his, his take on things? Yeah, it, it was great. Uh, I'd anticipated being there for um, uh, three quarters of an hour or an hour. Mm. Um, but uh, as we, we went into his, uh, his study, which is also at one end his, his workshop, so he has woodworking tools down there as well. The, he, he, was, um, he was only just beginning to, to move his woodworking things into, the, mm. into there. Um, no longer writing in a shed by this point, um, which is a little disappointing. Um, but he still has a shed window on, on his wall. Uh, <laughs> he, he sold it to um, an artist or book illustrator friend of his. And, um, and, and so this artist took out one of the windows and, and, and put, so gave it to him to hang on his wall. Um, so anyway, I, um, he said, just remind me who you are and where you're from. So I explained, well, I'm a Christian. I'm right. uh, writing, uh, uh, wanting to write about you um, from a particularly Christian perspective. Love your work. Uh, love what you've done. But I've got some, you know, I'm coming at it from a very different angle. So explain those kinds of things. And he said, ah, yes, I remember. Now, <laughs> I have a few questions I'd like to ask you. And he spent three quarters of an hour grilling me on all sorts of things. Um, and then said, I'm so sorry, I'm hijacking this. You're supposed to be asking me the questions. <laughs> uh, so he then spent, I don't know, another three quarters of an hour or so with me asking him questions. It was a splendid time. It, it was, um, he's, he's immensely genial and um, uh, obviously very intelligent. It was a very stimulating time. Uh, and I think he enjoyed it too. He gave me every impression that he was enjoying the conversation as much as I was. And uh, some of it we continued in the car afterwards. But of course, I was neither writing notes nor recording at that point. Right. Yeah, which is, I think, another kind of interesting aspect of it, I guess. There's, there's always going to be so much surrounding the interview that that can't be captured that can't be yes kept uh, in some sense uh, yeah that's i guess that's kind of where um this kind of a book enters in right like because that that same kind of penumbra surrounds uh, any work of literature there, there's all these sort of stories and things that don't make it into the final book but that are there nonetheless and that color it and, yes. and impact it and so then you know someone comes along who's who's interested in the story and then goes and seeks out some of those kinds of surrounding um elements right the the dark matter right and um and i find too that in many ways some of the more interesting pieces about pullman do come from people who are overtly um christian or religious in their outlook on things their kind of interests lie that's, in that yeah. that's uh, a very interesting observation i think that's right um so um i'm trying to think what uh, which of them i've I've read because it's a while since I read any of them. Hugh Raymond Picard um, had a particularly interesting take, I seem to remember. That was um, um, I didn't agree with a lot of what he wrote, but it was but it was quite interesting. Um, um, yeah, there were one or two others as well. I, I, I forget who they were now, but that is interesting. But he is raising such uh, enormous questions, explicitly um, religious questions in in many ways, um, with characters like Mary Malone and the whole kingdom of 
uh, the Re- the Republic of Heaven and uh, and so on. Um, so you know he's not he's not exactly hiding that <laughs> that no, perspective. No. Um, Benz has written a book, the uh, the Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ. I guess that was probably yeah. on his mind as you guys were talking. Well, I don't know. Uh, when did we, I interviewed him in two thousand and four? I think. Uh, that's 15 years ago now. That's extraordinary. Um, I did drop him a line last year saying, can we do another interview at some point? But we haven't managed to arrange it yet. Um, there's a lot more I want to ask him now. So, and the, the Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ came out in uh, 2008, 2009, maybe some, uh, some years after, I suppose. Yeah, a little bit later. Um, nevertheless, those ideas were very much in his mind. Um, I actually find that his, the weakest of all of his books. Yeah, I was um, a bit disappointed with it too. Hmm. For, for me, the problem is that um, obviously he has these very strong uh, convictions about there is no elsewhere, there is no God, this is an entirely materialistic universe. Uh, Jesus was was nothing more than a great moral teacher. He wasn't a great moral teacher, but that's, that's all he was. Um, and he sees Jesus as having been um, overlaid with layers of uh, invention by the early church, notably uh, the Apostle Paul. So um, uh, what he's trying to do in The Good Man Jesus and the Scoundrel Christ is, is to say, um, here's, here is the authentic, the real Jesus, in a sense. I mean, he's not quite claiming that, but it's uh, the, the, um, in the, the late Victorian era of liberal theology there was the idea of the jesus of history and the, and the christ of faith and so so you've got the jesus of history an ordinary guy and and yet all of this stuff is kind of coming on top to um to to create a very different story and um and writing it in such a uh, an old-fashioned biblical style so i don't think it reads well i don't i think he's too um i think he's concentrating too much on telling his message rather than telling the story mm. and he criticizes people for that um, he says that um, all storytellers teach whether the storyteller all stories teach whether the storyteller intends them to or not they teach the worlds we create they teach the morality we live by that's great so stories teach whatever uh, but he says i'm not trying to preach or or write a philosophical treatise or whatever i'm telling a story and it felt to me that in the good man jesus and the scoundrel christ he was exactly doing that business of being philosophical and preaching or whatever. So, yeah, I'm disappointed by that one. Yeah, and I think, you know, it's a bit disingenuous when he says those things because he does clearly have a very strong opinion about a lot of this stuff. He's obviously very interested in it and very knowledgeable about it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And, I mean, that comes through in his conversations a, a great deal and then also, you know, in its own way through his writing. People talk yeah. about how that's, you know, becomes more prevalent in the Amber Spyglass as well of the three books. Yes. Of the original trilogy. People tend to say that the third is their least favorite for that very reason. I don't know if that yeah. was experience. Yeah. Yeah. It, um, I think that's right. Um, I, I had really conflicted feelings reading the Amber Spyglass. I had absolutely loved um, Northern Lights or the Golden Compass as you call it over your side of the pond yeah. uh, and, uh, and The Subtle Knife just stunning works of fiction and The Amber Spyglass was too but there were moments where I felt that 
he was letting the ideas get the better of him. Uh, Mary Malone, for instance, says some very strong things. And um, he, he says that he, it's natural that he should have a character that, that speaks for him in some sense. He said, why should I have all of my characters who speak against me? Which is absolutely reasonable. And that, that's fine. Um, but he, I think he kind of blurs the boundaries a little bit when, when he has a character that says very strong things, a character from our world saying very strong things in, in, his, in his fiction um, about the church in our world that lines up precisely with the kinds of strong things that he says about the church and about religion in our world. And so she is absolutely his, his mouthpiece at that point. And so I think what happens is that he then, um, I, th I just think there are a few times where he, he loses sight of the story itself and is, is too caught up with trying to, to say the ideas. Yeah. And it would be better if he just had a little more restraint at that point and, and allowed the story to push on. You know, hit, hint at those things show us those things don't don't labor the point and i think he he just got a bit preachy at times uh, and uh, that's yeah that's one of the few weaknesses of, of the trilogy i think which i still think is is a stunning stunning piece of work yeah well i i agree like i i've always loved the, all of the books of them each has you know things that i particularly love um and maybe a few things that are i think let work less well or whatever but you know, for me, I read them as a kid and I was not a critical eye, you know, as I was reading the third book, I just devoured it when it finally came out. It was like sure. years later, right? So I was waiting and waiting. And, uh, it's only <laughs> yeah, time I have any kind of, you know, analytic distance to, to see yeah. any of these yeah. effects. But, um, but I think it's also telling that it's the, the largest of the three. It's baggiest mm. in other respects too. You know, he's telling more of the story which he always talks about having to try to restrain himself from and stick to yes. the, the path, as he talks about in that one essay, the, the story that is the path through the wood of the yes. wood, all this other wooly kind of material that he's taken from and um, sort of alludes to. And, and now, you know, since then, he's written a couple short books, Flyers mm. um, Oxford and uh, Once Upon a Time in the North. And so mm. he's exploring those, those other areas. He's, he's written this short audio piece, The Collectors, Right mm -hmm. about Mrs. Coulter and this painting of her uh, golden monkey demon, yes. uh, which is creepy and cool. Um, <laughs> and he's written also, of course, La Belle Sauvage, and now the Secret Commonwealth yeah. coming out soon. Have you read yeah. some of this later stuff of his? And what do you make of how he's developed since the Amber Spyglass? Yeah, I, I just love going back to the world. Um, yeah. So I I really enjoyed those two little books. Um, they were just so beautifully produced as well. Um, especially um, Lyra's Oxford with the, the, the postcards and things in there. Just, uh, yeah, there was something absolutely delightful about the way that David Fickling um, put those together, um, the, the printing of them and, and everything. Just just beautiful books in, in every sense. Um, uh, La Belle Sauvage, I thought, was fabulous. Um, completely not what I was expecting. Uh, when I interviewed him, he he said that he was working on the Book of Dust, and this was going to be his 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 creation myth for the whole thing. Yeah. So that's what I've been holding my breath for. And then along comes this book, and it's it's not the creation myth. It's um, <laughs> it's this 
brilliant narrative about Lyra as a, you know, Lyra's beginnings really. And um, so, oh, great. But this is not what I was expecting. <laughs> so what, what's going to happen in the secret Commonwealth? It sounds like it's, it's more narrative. It doesn't sound like it's giving us the creation myth. Um, but maybe that's going to leak in in some ways. Um, or maybe he's just changed his mind about what the Book of Dust is going to be. It took him long enough to, <laughs> to start working on it. Um, because he, yeah, 2004, he said, I, I, I'll be doing it soon. Right. Right. And then I kept dropping him email saying, how's the Book of Dust doing? He said, well, I'm doing too much publicity or I'm working on another book and um, I haven't quite got to it yet. Or, yeah. Um, yeah, it's been a long wait. And then, oh, <laughs> yeah. great, great works. Yeah, and, and it is, so La Belle Sauvage, it's sort of set before the, the other material. Mm. Um, it, it picks up some threads like we hear... I think at some point from the Egyptians, we hear about Lord Asriel saving some of their kids in a flood, mm. right? Yes. Like mentioned, and that's a historical thing, right? In, yes. in Oxford, there was a big flood in the mid-century, right? Oh, yeah. So, so it kind of takes that, but I, the timing isn't quite right. Like it's got to be closer to the 80s, at least in our world, because that's when Will is born. And from uh -huh. his letters, we learn that, from his dad's letters, we learn that, right? I, this is one of the big questions I've had as I've been rereading these books is, getting straight the chronology of events. Uh -huh. Just like, right. when is everything happening in relation to other things? Because sometimes it seems like, especially Mrs. Coulter, just like zips from one place to another, like <laughs> so quickly. And then, you know, uh -huh. mentioned that Lord Asriel must have been planning this, this uh, rebellion for, for eons because he's got this huge castle that he's somehow, right? It's like time doesn't seem to flow quite. And, and so I wonder if that's part of this like fairy element that Pullman has brought in explicitly now Right. To kind of get around that problem, if there's if there's fairy powers, you know, in a fairyland, um, in one of these multiple universes, or in the background mm. of all of them, maybe then then maybe you can sort of mess around with time, and and I know that's part of the physics that he's interested in too, right? Because if mm. you if you're dealing with cutting through space and multiple universes, then you've also got to account for um, problems with timelines, and if there's other you know worlds, then are there other yous in those worlds having their yes. different so. This is something, I guess, you've also studied a bit of physics um, mm. and maybe have you thought a bit about some of the problems with time and how Pullman has accounted for that or, or could account for that? I, I think that's a really good, good observation about, about the time um, things. And it's not something I've reflected on in relation to La Belle Sauvage. Um, uh, and I really ought to have done because what you say about Lord Azrael planning this this huge rebellion for so long is that yeah absolutely that's a it's a very good point um there's no sign of him doing that in la belle sauvage but of course he if he has some means of getting through to another world then yes he could do his preparations there maybe um i think the timing of the flood isn't an issue because that's in um there's no need necessarily for time in Will's world to be running in parallel with time in, in Lyra's world. So I'm not too, too worried about that one. Um, um, yeah. So oh, it's a, that's a very interesting, I'm going to have to go away and think about that. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've talked to, well, I haven't spoken to her, but I've exchanged emails with Lori Frost, who's also written a big companion volume to the uh -huh. trilogy and she does a lot of you know glossing and indexing things out 
and uh, asked her about the, the chronology question too, because that's one of the things that isn't in her book. She's got great right. maps of like their path through Oxford and things like this, but I didn't see like a, you know, here's when each event happens in relation to the other events. And mm -hmm. here's how long the story takes to, from the point where Lyra hides in the retiring room to the point where they go their separate ways at the end. Like what is exact, where are we in terms of a year? Where are we in terms of, you know, I just am very curious about um, seasons, like when things, yes. but in, in his discussion with you, he does talk about his, his or origin story, his myth that he's been working on and tinkering with. Yes. And he reads some of it, which I thought was so interesting. He talks about the, the original rebellion of angels being the point at which all the worlds sort of fragment from each other. And he just kind of tosses that off as like a little aside, like, I like this <laughs> idea. I don't know if it matters, but, but it's there. And I think that's a key that, to note that, that he really likes that idea probably. <laughs> it's like me, uh, as a way to say that um, humbly, right? But, but I think that's so interesting that in some way their rebellion would cause this fragmenting of time and space and lead to all these different then reconnections much later as, as people pass from world to world. It seems to be the prerogative of angels to do that. They seem to know how to do that. Um, but then later, of course, it becomes a kind of tragic thing when the creators of the knife, right, um, don't really understand what they're doing and they, you know, unleash the specters. And what, when Lord Asriel, you know, creates this huge rent in the fabric of his world, it leads to the climate changing and these disasters. Yep. So there's like, this kind of unintended consequence in both cases, in the former case, um, leading to the fragmenting of worlds and all these possible stories mm. that unfold, mm. right? And in the latter case, this kind of disastrous element of, you know, passing between worlds. And, and of course, finally, we have to go back to our own worlds. I, I find that to be a really intricate and, and complex thing. You know, Pullman talks about the knife being something he didn't really understand as he was writing it, like he knew there was more to it. Um, and I feel like that's the way probably his story is as, as a whole, right? It, it must have different effects on people than he can imagine. Um, I know that's been true for, for us, I, I guess, um, and maybe for lots of readers who, you know, read these books and far from, you know, doubting their faith, actually think more deeply about it and, and mm -hmm. have a great, greater kind of appreciation of it. That's, that's been my experience anyhow. And Maybe you could just, I don't know, that's a lot of different stuff, I know, but maybe just mm. to that kind of unintended consequence, uh, possibility, yeah. that realm yeah. of, his, of his physics. Yeah, he talks about uh, unintended consequences of the knife, as you say, in, in the interview with me. Um, it was, I think he quotes um, uh, Yorick Bernison saying, um, this knife has intentions uh, of, of which its makers weren't aware or something along those lines. And um, uh, he, he says it's a, a metaphor for, for our creation of technology that, that always has consequences that we don't necessarily anticipate. And um, it's not until later on that we can look back and say, well, there were some good things, but, but there were some things that we really um, didn't, never thought were going to come out of that. And I think there's quite a bit of that. Um, the knife, and one or two other things functioning as, as metaphors of yeah. the way that we make decisions at the time um, that we, we, we may not care about the consequences or we may not be able to anticipate the consequences. And of course, there's a difference between those two things. Um, and I think maybe that ties into his own storytelling that he's telling, he's telling his story in the moment and 
perhaps doesn't necessarily always anticipate the consequences of the, the, the turns that he <laughs> that he puts in himself. Hence, he ends up with a, a chronology that might be a little bit difficult to tie up at the end of all of this. <laughs> um, so, um, yeah, maybe his own subtle knife is, uh, has, it, has intentions of which he's not aware. Um, yeah. Well, sort of like the, the rational intellect, you know, trying to chop things into neat little... That's kind yeah. of one other way I think about the knife, right? It's like, of course, it doesn't act rationally at all within his world. It does impossible things, and that's yeah. kind of the key to it. But, but it also, you know, classically as an image, as if it were on the alethiometer, one of the top meanings would be rational intellect, I think. You know, it's like yeah. popping up things and dicing them up in neat little ways. Um, yes. And I think, I think he mentions that Will would later become a, a surgeon. I don't know if he's stuck with that idea um, and maybe we'll find out, but, but, you know, it can be a thing where you use that ability to, to heal and to bind up wounds, right? Not mm. only to, to, to cut things apart, but then to see, you know, see what they are at bottom and then be able to better understand how to, how to heal them, how to put them back together. Um, yeah. I absolutely think that that's one of the outcomes of, of his analysis of religion, of myth, you know, as he's, you know, sort of, cutting into it and, and wounding it in some ways, he's also providing certain tools for with, with which to maybe rebuild it, reconstruct it. Sure. Um, the I, idea I of moral that's... responsibility is huge yeah. for him, that, that we, we have to act in a way that is um, for the good of others because we are, we are connected with them. And so the, the whole idea of connectedness is, uh, the connectedness of everything is central to his idea of the Republic of Heaven. Um, so that the king is dead. There is no, you know, there is no king. There is no God. Uh, but the ideas of heaven are nevertheless important to us, he says. And so we need to, uh, because there's no elsewhere, we need to create heaven where we are in, in this world. Uh, and so he says it's a way of, uh, of expressing our, our connectedness, our mutual interdependence, uh, and therefore also our our sense of responsibility and uh, the the trilogy and his other books there's a there's a very strong moral thread going through them he's he's um he's far from being a, um a postmodern relativist who says that everybody's um morality is down to their personal choice is he he thinks that there are some things that are right and some things that are that are wrong and therefore we should be using our freedom and our responsibility and our wisdom which of course he thinks is entirely um, uh, derived from uh, us beginning to exercise freedom and then discovering what happens as a consequence of that so it's, it's something that we accumulate through the exercise of our freedom so we have to use those um, attributes for the good of others ultimately and um, so I think that's that's one of the reasons why the trilogy has been so inspiring for people, I think, because uh, Lyra and Will and, and the other heroes of the story, they do act in a very selfless way, um, even to their own cost sometimes. And that's, that's hugely commendable. Um, I can't remember whether it was in the interview or not. I said to him, um, some of these values, you know, they're, they're rather Christian values. And he said, he said, why do you bloody Christians always think you have, <laughs> you have the right to values? These, these are just human values. Yeah, yeah, fair. Okay. But yeah, but I think that their, their expression is crystallized in a, in a particular way in, in different 
you know, particular yes. stories. And yes. obviously the Christian one has had a huge impact on him personally and on, you know, the culture that he's brought up in and, and that yes. he's in a deep way passing it on in this new form, yes. albeit, yes. But, but totally, you know, re recapitulating the story of the fall. Like that's explicitly mm. his mm. theme. And, and, mm. and uh, it's in inevitable that if you, if you care about his story, you're going to want to read his sources, right? You're going to go to Milton and Blake and the Bible, and you're going to read yes. the King James Version. And that's like, I, I wouldn't have been so gung-ho about like reading the Bible if I hadn't first read Philip Pullman. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, that's a fascinating yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so I, I guess... Uh, just, uh, sorry, I was just going to say, interestingly, he, he doesn't cite... Um, when I said, what are your big influences or, or, or in writing though, maybe it wasn't in the interview, maybe in other places, he talks about his three big influences being, as you say, Milton and Blake, and then, um, uh, Christ's essay, um, on the marionette theater. Um, he doesn't list the Bible as part of that. And yet the Bible clearly is a, is a massive, massive influence on him. When you ask him what, or when he talks about his, um, his worldview, he says, I'm a, Sometimes he says he's an agnostic. Sometimes he says he's an atheist. Uh, but he often specifies that to say, I'm an atheist. I'm a very particular kind of atheist. I'm a Christian atheist. Mm -hmm. And more to the point, I'm a Church of England atheist because that's the kind of God that I'm rejecting. Um, <laughs> and that's the world that he grew up in. His, his grandfather was, um, was a Church of England uh, vicar, chaplain of Norwich Prison. Um, his father had died at the age of seven. So he and, and his mother lived with his grandparents for a while. Uh, his grandparent, his grandfather was a, a massively influential figure on him. Um, and yet as a teen, he, he turned away from his grandfather's faith. Um, I don't know what kind of Christian his, his grandfather was. He describes him as, um, as being a very Victorian kind of Christian. I think, uh, uh I can't remember quite what he thinks he means by that, but, um, uh, it could mean that he was, was, I think he means he's probably just a very traditional sort of, um, Church of England vicar, um, but uh, clearly massively influential on him. So, so yeah, it shaped his thinking in profound ways. Well, yeah, and you know, he tells stories about um, feeling the power of of words, you know, through poetry, and I think inevitably, again, of of the power of um, the the language of of I don't know, being in church or maybe hearing his grandfather tell some of these stories. Mm -hmm. I, I imagine that that must have been a very formative thing. Um, he, he talks a bit, a bit about, um, you know, losing his father, how that is similar to other, you know, uh, great writers like, like Tolkien, whose father died young, right? Mm -hmm. he, he makes that connection, which I think is pretty, pretty telling. Um, mm -hmm. you, you bring up in, in your book, I thought one of the really good points that you made was about how actually um, losing his mother might have been formative as well, although much later, right? Mm. How the time, I guess the, going back to timing again, but as he's writing The Golden Compass, it's in the early 90s. That would have been around uh, the death of his mother. Mm. And so uh, that becomes a theme in the story, actually, is this idea of Will having to go away from his mother, right? Mm. In the second book. Yeah. And, and he's always thinking of her. He's always worrying about her. And it becomes kind of a crisis, actually, because it's it's the thing that that shatters the knife, right? When he's thinking of his mother rather than thinking about what he has to do. Um, I wonder how that, you know, going back to like the knife as a metaphor for Pullman's book, you know, 
is that part of what makes writing that so difficult for him and it takes him such a long time to kind of get mm. the final book to come together um, that that he's still working through some of his personal you know feelings for his parents his mother who just died his his mm. father who he very knew very little um, yes that that's a very interesting idea um, you may well be right i i I just I don't know I, I can't really comment on that that's fine no I, it's he, your idea his, that made me think of it so yeah that, that's very interesting he says that that his father loss of his father when he was seven didn't have a big impact on him yeah. um, and he he flatly denies that that has anything to do with his um, his uh, rejection of God right um, uh, and yet I I can't quite escape from the feeling that he protests too much over this. Um, um, in that, now obviously I, I cannot presume to say what's going on in, inside his head. If, if that's, you know, if he says it didn't have a big impact on him because his father was a glamorous but remote figure who he hardly knew, he was a pilot in the Royal Air Force, um, was killed in a, in a plane crash, um, uh, with eventually it turned out questionable circumstances about that, that his father may have been drinking beforehand. And mm. yeah, so all of that. Anyway, that, that came out much later. Um, so, but, but he says, he says that because of his father being, being remote and he didn't see that much of him, it, it he says, I probably wept at the time, but didn't do much to him. And yet for a seven year old boy with a, a glamorous heroic father who he's never going to see again and then grows up in a situation where he has not really known his father and never will know his father seems to me that that is is going straight into will who is yeah. is desperate to find his father um and i i can't quite escape from the feeling that that sense of being cheated out of that relationship feeds into his rejection of the idea of God. As I say, he denies it. I, I, I just, I just wonder, we don't always know ourselves what goes on in, in our minds, do we? We, we have ways of, of, um, as I do myself, I, you know, absolutely. Every one of us has ways of rationalizing the things that have happened to us, of constructing narratives for our lives that, um, that are a way of making sense of, of who we are and where we are in the world and the kind of people that we are. And, and those narratives are not always a, a, um, a, 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 not always a, a proper reflection of what happened at the time. We have ways of, of, of twisting things. I mean, you see it in particularly uh, most graphically, probably in cases of people who have been uh, abused as children and they, they have find ways of, of, um, kind of blotting that out of their memory until something happens to trigger it. And then suddenly all of this, this pain and horror comes back. Um, and um, for those of us who've not had that kind of experience, that seems, well, how, how could you not? And yet it, it, it's so well documented. So we have ways of, of constructing protecting narratives for ourselves. Um, so I, I, it's, it's something I wonder, but I, sure. I don't know. they'll keep denying it can only speculate and and i think you're right to to caution against you know um inferring something that is 
of course, deeply personal for him, you know, any more than him saying, you know, no, you don't believe in God, you know, <laughs> it's like, those are sort of equivalent um, claims. And, and he, I think in your interview, you guys, you touch on that, how you can't ever really speak for someone else, but, but one's own conscience is sort of supreme um, and sovereign. Um, but I think about this too, in terms of, um, you know, uh, his, his writing of this story is so powerful, um, it must sort of weave in, at least subconsciously or archetypally or something like this, some of that emotion that um, comes out of his experience. I think it has to. And one, one really interesting aspect of this, I think there's a few places where this comes through, but one is at the end of The Subtle Knife when Will is wrestling in the dark with the figure who proves to be his father. Um, that wrestling in the night strikes me as being awfully similar to a story like uh, Jacob and the Angel, right? Uh, they, there has to be some kind of resonance there. And, and I think maybe it has to be grounded in this kind of human experience of, you know, wondering, um, wrestling with, you know, figuratively uh, one's place in the world, one's place in the family, whatever, you know, I think that those things do kind of connect pretty, mm. I don't know um, about, I, I'm sure you've studied that, that passage in the Bible a bit more. And could, could you say a little bit about how, you know, what's going on there in the song? It's a very mysterious moment because why are they wrestling? Like why, yeah. what's going on? Yeah. Oh, it is a very mysterious moment where, where Jacob finds himself wrestling with, with this figure who blesses him in, in the, you know, they struggle all night, they fight all night, and then this figure blesses him in the morning by dislocating his hip, and Jacob is never the same again. And um, he, he, it seems, and he says, this is the place where I've seen God, uh, the, where, I've, where I've struggled with God. And so he, he understands that this, this figure that he can't overpower is, is, is God in some human form. Mm. Um, some people suggest that it's an an angel, uh, which which isn't. I mean, uh, in terms of the Hebrew, I f- believe that's entirely reasonable. Um, uh, or it could be a um, could be. Some people suggest it's a pre-incarnate uh, appearance of, of Jesus. Um, but that maybe I don't know. I'm not. I I'm not in a position to be able to. <laughs> to <laughs> too much on that I, I i think i tend to go with the idea that it's most likely uh, the angel of the lord who is who is who is fighting with with jacob and is uh obviously god's representative at that point because that's what the angels are um, um but but jacob bears the mark of that through through the rest of his life then he always has that limp reminding him of this encounter with with god and he was never the same again um he he had been um a deceiver and a cheater and uh didn't like it when he got cheated um um, uh, not yeah not the nicest of guys for for a very long time and yet from that point on everything was was different and he was reunited with his uh reconciled with his brother who he cheated and um yeah, it becomes one of the one of the the patriarchs of the nation of Israel. Um, well, that name, then, 
That name Israel, isn't that also a, a, a relic of this meeting, right? The, the one who wrestles with God or something. Absolutely. Yes, it is. Yeah. Uh, so, so there it is preserved right down through uh, the, the history of all of his descendants. So it's a hugely important moment and yet utterly mysterious. Um, I, I don't know that Philip Foreman is trying to deliberately evoke that, but have there's a resonance there absolutely as you say some of the so many of the biblical stories again because of his background um so many of the biblical stories kind of are just hovering <laughs> hovering deep in in the background uh, there's something i think that was probably uh intriguing and mysterious to him about that encounter between jacob and um and the angel or, or god himself and um uh, and, and that yeah pops up in an unexpected way, I suspect that if if you said to him, "Is there something going on here?" He'd say, "Oh, I'd never never spotted it." But um, maybe not. Maybe maybe he does. Maybe he would be aware. Well, again, I mean, even back to Plato, you know, he talks about you know poets are inspired. They don't really know why they write the things they do or say. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And he talks about this too as this voice, yes, this narrative voice. It comes. <laughs> It feels like from outside of him, you know, it speaks mm -hmm. to him and he, he just channels it when he's writing. His, mm -hmm. his characters sort of carry the story. And um, and I guess, you know, if you've ever written fiction and stuff, you probably have experienced that too, or, or, or poetry, where you get this kind of inspiration. But but he also talks about how hard he works. You know, he, he really stresses, right, you have to be disciplined. You have to make yourself do it because it's hard work, right? And and so there is this other element of it where he's he's very much in control. He speaks of himself as the authority of the story, which is a loaded word in his world. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> yeah. Yes, the authority of the story, and yet he says that he has no authority over the story having written it. Exactly. Once it's say, this is what it means. It's it's for he talks about the um, the democracy of reading is the is it the phrase he uses? I think it is, isn't it? Um, so that we the readers have to figure out what it means for ourselves and he says that the text makes certain readings more plausible or more difficult um but that he can't say this is what he means um there's strong echoes of of um umberto echo at this point in um his uh, stuff about in interpreting literature um because e echo had had uh, strongly adopted reader response theory that um, it is all down to the reader and then as as time went on he said no that there is that's not enough because the author did mean something um and the text preserves stuff within it that makes certain readings possible and 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 makes certain readings impossible and yet i do come at it and read it as who i am not as who somebody else is and i read it as who i am today not as who I am tomorrow. Um, and the author was clearly trying to communicate something. And yet what it was that the author is, was trying to communicate is actually now inaccessible, even to the author, because they're not the same person they were <laughs> when they wrote it. So he says that the meaning of a text is in the, is in the, the, the locus of meaning is within the interplay of those three things of, of author and text and reader. Um, but ultimately he says the text has um i think he i can't remember the phrase he uses but it it has a a controlling influence over the that dynamic because it does uh 
it is a fixed thing um and and therefore does rule in some things and, and rule out other things um so there is that that tension in in pullman saying yes I, i'm the authority because i create the story i'm not the authority because it's over to you yeah. um uh and i th- i think he's sometimes a little disingenuous about not saying this is what i meant yeah I, I understand why he wants to say he doesn't want to say this is what it means but i think sometimes he could say a little more about this is what I meant. This is what I was thinking when I wrote it. But I suppose as soon as he does that, then he makes that an authoritative reading right. and he's not prepared to do that. Yeah. Um, well, he, I would be really curious, you know, if there were questions that you could ask him about, you know, parts of his, his writing, um, what, what was going on or what he was drawing on for certain things. Um, it sounded like you had some questions like that prepared in your interview but you never got a, a, a chance to ask him so, so yeah. what what places in the writing or what things about his writing process would you have wanted to get to ask him or would you ask mm-hmm. him if you got to talk again um and then you didn't get sidetracked into you know uh, <laughs> and all this stuff. yeah um probably deep in the the uh, the the darkest recesses of my computer. I still have a file with all the questions <laughs> I intended to ask him, but I I don't suppose I've looked at that since two thousand and four. Um, I think it's probably still there somewhere. Um, I would I'd love to have have asked him. More, oh, so many things that I wanted to ask him at the time. What would I want to ask him now? Um, I think I would want. Yes, I I would probably want to ask him about that kind of thing we were just talking about. I think in in some ways of of how he sees that that interplay of of author and text and reader because we we touched on this in our interview but didn't go very much further with it. Um, uh, And I think he yeah he said such interesting things in other contexts particularly when speaking about children's literature in general about about the nature of literature and the process of writing so so i, I have all sorts of questions about the about his actual process of of creating stories um i i'd love to talk to him more about um what he sees as some of the 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 deepest motivations for characters like Azrael. I mean, we, we see what they do. Um, um, but, but what was it that got Azrael going in, in the first place? I think that the conversation I had with him about the, the creation myth, and he gave me a copy of it, which, which uh, on the condition that I, I never tell anybody, I never publish it and I never tell anybody what its contents are mm-hmm. other than what he has already said publicly. So, so you know, I I have it, and it's and it's fascinating. I would I would love to, um, because I hadn't read that at the time. I'd love to go back to it now and say, okay, how much of this do you still go along with? Um, and in particular, I mean, the one thing he he said a little bit about uh, publicly um, uh, about Sophia as the personification of wisdom. So he, he, there's a character of Sophia. I think I think she comes up in the interview. Uh, uh, the little bit he he reads to me. Does does he mention Sophia in there? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but so I'd, I'd love to talk to him about how 
um, Sophia um, is then uh, how the that bringer of wisdom in in, the, in Sophia then appears within the role of the tempter and and how she has um, shaped characters and and what she's what she's done to various characters or, or various other incarnations if that's for want of a better word for, for Sophia how various characters have have reached their their moment of wisdom we see it for will and lyra because they're the central pieces pieces in in his um uh in his big chessboard of what's going on um but i want to know more about about what drives some of these other secondary characters um and particularly the ones who are who, who are seen to be heroic and flawed perhaps but uh, but still heroic uh, the egyptians you know what's what's driving the egyptians what you know they, oh so they, many questions they seem to be um you know connected to the land in this deep yes. way in the new book right in the the bell yes, yes they know what's going on they know it's going to flood before it happens and yes um and the government and doesn't they're they're incompetent yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that's got to tie into the whole um, world of uh, fairy mm -hmm. that he introduced. That was a fascinating thing that suddenly I did not expect the world of fairy to be coming through. Um, and out there, it's, he's in the same territory as Lewis again, isn't mm -hmm. he? <laughs> you know, he's, he has been described as the anti-C.S. Lewis. Um, he has, he's very dismissive of C.S. Lewis, but he writes in the same territory. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> And even more so now, he's explicitly bringing in fairy characters. Talking to, yeah. Um, yeah. who talks about the importance of um, uh, the the world of a fairy in um, his essay on on fairy stories, right. um, uh, and and how the world of fairy and the stories that we tell are um, uh, a reflection, uh, uh, an echo, a recapitulation of the. What, what he and Lewis and I see as the, the fundamental story of the universe, which is, which is God rescuing us, um, God creating and then rescuing us through actually coming into the world as, as Jesus um, in the incarnation and his death and resurrection. And, and so Tolkien has this, this idea of the eucatastrophe, the, the, fall, the, um, um, the, the disaster that leads to the good, which is, which is seen particularly uh, uh, in the the cross and resurrection of Jesus, but he says that the happy ending of of the fairy tale is is that echo of that that's deep written deep into the human heart, and we can't get away from it. Um, and you know, if if Tolkien were around today, he would say, "Yeah, the Pullman is doing that too." <laughs> you know, he has the eucatastrophe too. He can't get away with it. Um, can't get away from it. Uh, there is still that longing for that for the happy happy ending. Now, Pullman would say there's a completely different explanation for why we want the happy ending, um, and it's nothing to do with Tolkien's explanation. And he would say, "Well, yes, I'm writing in the same kind of territory as Lewis, but that's because fairy tales are fun." Right. And, and Pullman did a great version of of um, uh, the Brothers Grimm fairy tales, or some of them anyway. Uh, Splendid, splendid reading of those. Uh, really fresh and uh, dynamic. So he's a great fan of, of fairy tales. So some of the influences on Lewis 
and on Tolkien are some of the influences on Pullman too. So it's no surprise that he's writing in the same territory and yet doing such very different things with them. Yeah. So I was curious, I wanted to ask you if you've read much of Barfield as the other inkling of the, uh, this whole consciousness thing. Like, what do you make of him and how Pullman might fit in with some of his territory on, on language, on, you know, uh, anthroposophy or you know whatever yeah. term he, he wants to use. Uh, i have to confess i've i have just tinkered around the very edge of barfield uh, as it were i've not i've, I've read very little by okay. him one or two essays and read some things about him but yeah I'm, i think i better not go there i'll <laughs> excuse my ignorance too too disastrously <laughs> okay no that's fine i i also would not profess to understand a lot of the Barfield I've read, and so I was, I'm always trying to get people's help with it. So, <laughs> I, <laughs> yeah, uh, look somewhere else. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, cool. Well, thank you again, um, Tony. Uh, as far as your current work, uh, I know you said you're going to a, a conference in Poland pretty soon. Um, what kinds of stuff are you currently really interested in going on in um, pop culture, media, uh, new literature, and, and stuff? And what are you working on uh, in doing in Poland? Uh, and the conference I'm at in Poland is the European Leadership Forum. So it's a thousand Christian leaders from across Europe, from uh, 20 odd different nations. Uh, so I'll be teaching a, a couple of sessions, workshops on um, uh, one on um, some of the, the, which ties in with, with Pullman is um, in the stories that we tell, there are a number of key themes that we keep going back to again and again and again that, that I as a Christian maintain these are reflections of um, the biblical storyline because um, because I'm influenced by by Tolkien I suppose and and um, uh, what we were saying just now that, that the the the, uh, the story of what what God has done and is doing in the world is is somehow written into into our subconscious uh, in ways that that I don't understand. I don't know whether Tolkien understood. I, I suspect not. He just said, you know, it, it, it's there. Um, so things like the Paradise Lost story, the fact that we we had a, a wonderful world and we've turned our back on it. You know, we've we've lost it in some sense. Um, so you could find that in a story. Um, as simple as Mrs. Doubtfire, you know, <laughs> um, it's the kids have a happy life with, with their, with their dad, but their dad's a bit of a, of, of a mess. And he ends up uh, being chucked out of the house and he can't see his kids anymore. And the, he didn't realize what a good world he had until now he can't have it. And so he has to, to become Mrs. Doubtfire in order to be able to see his kids again. That's, I don't know why that example occurred to me, but <laughs> But there we are. Uh, uh, so, so it pops up in all sorts of places. So, so the Paradise Lost story, which obviously comes up in his Dark Materials. Then there's the idea of breaking free, which again is Dark Materials, um, because um, uh, what human beings were doing um, in uh, the the first temptation at the fall in the Garden of Eden um, is to rebel against God's authority. Pullman sees that as the moment at which we discover wisdom for ourselves um, because we exert our, our independence of God. Yeah, we did in, exert our independence from God, but that was the moment at which we surrendered the wisdom that we did have um, to a large extent. We were given all the wisdom that we needed. So we're breaking free of, of, 
of God's authority. And, and we keep recapitulating that in that we break free of all sorts of things. So Truman, at the end of the Truman Show, uh, is, is breaking free from Christoph's authority as he steps through the door and says, in case I don't see you, good afternoon, good evening, good night. Um, uh, so he's breaking free. And then there's um, the, the ideas of things like remaking the world, because once we are, once we're east of Eden, once we're exiled from living in relationship with God, we have to remake the world in some sense. Um, the Republic of Heaven is, is what's going on. There's an, there's an attempt to, to refashion the world in, in, a, in a way that doesn't include God within it. Um, uh, then there's um, defeating the monsters uh, because we are surrounded by by enemies. Some of them are internal enemies. Some of them are, are physical enemies. Some of them are enemies from from the environment. But we 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 const- life is, becomes a struggle, and we have to kill the dragons or or whatever. Uh, what else have we got? Finding true love, um, not necessarily not necessarily romantic love, um, but finding. Um, Will finding his father, you know, he's yeah. he wants the, the 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 genuine love of of the father to his son, um, as well as the love that that Will and Lyra eventually find. Um, uh, I've got seven coming home at the end. Um, we long to be to be back home, yeah. um, or to find home in the first place. And I've missed one out. Um, oh, overcoming brokenness. Okay. Uh, so we're it's closely connected with the uh, remake in the world, but we, we become so aware of our brokenness in the world. Um, I think it uh, was Matt Zoller Seitz who uh, took over from Roger Ebert as the film critic for uh, rogerebert.com. Uh, I think it's him in an essay he wrote on um, Wes Anderson. He said that Wes Anderson's work is all about dealing with, with brokenness um, and, 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 that's the we become aware of brokenness as we go into adolescence and that's what defines us very interesting um so so the whole business of overcoming the brokenness within us and around us is huge so one of the things i'm doing is talking about those big themes um finding enlightenment maybe is another one um though uh i haven't got that in my in my outline uh and then what's my other one on worldviews something on worldviews um so that's what's go- coming up next week. And more generally, I'm working on a doctorate at the moment, um, looking at the relationship between the Old Testament prophets and contemporary media. Interesting. Um, early days for that, relatively speaking. Um, and I'm at a point where I need to uh, make some big decisions about which direction I'm going in. So, yeah, I'm enjoying that immensely. Cool. That is that's a really interesting project. Uh, I... I would really like to learn more, I guess, uh, to talk to you again in some time. I'm, you know, just starting the subtle knife here. So I'm going to be reading these books for a while yet. Um, more are still coming out and, um, yeah, I, I've really enjoyed, uh, getting this chance to talk to you. Um, I hope to, to see you again. Great pleasure. Thank you very much for having me on Wesley. Awesome. Great. All right.